Welcome to the 63rd episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week last week's episode where I told you about the whacked out history of the Hotel Cecil. Our show is often horrifying and graphic and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime. But I have to warn you that we're going to make jokes and laugh during this podcast. So do you want to learn more about us? Please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our social media pages. We drop a new episode every Friday morning. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss out. Thanks again for listening. If you are even slightly entertained by our Southern charm, leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. If not, reach out to us and let us know how we can improve. Also, spread the word and recommend us to your friends and family, or even your enemies. Yay. Hey, Cindy, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you? I'm good. So I have to tell you that after we recorded the last episode, when you told us about the Hotel Cecil, Mm -hmm. I actually started watching it. I watched two episodes. Okay. Um of the of the documentary and i am telling you what like the whole thing is kind of bizarre mm-hmm. and have you i know you saw you told me that you kind of st- started watching it but did you yeah. ever did you ever watch it i got through episode one and part of two i haven't okay. gotten i don't think i got as far as you so i got all the way through two and okay. uh and i don't know how many are in the documentary but I, four. I will tell you what it is the most bizarre story ever and i don't know my heart breaks for that family yes so sad but they had the general manager the girl who was a general manager for like 11 years or 10 years or something Mm -hmm. 2007 to 2017 and she was just kind of strange the blonde yes yeah i don't know something about her was just i don't know kind kind of weird but she she could tell a good story i liked that about it you know but yeah very interesting yes yeah so how's your week? Anything? Anything long. you want to share? When was just long. long. Yeah, I'm glad it's over. Yeah, me too. I was supposed to fly to Denver tomorrow, but oh, snowstorm. Our flights are canceled. That sucks. Yeah. So who knows? Who knows what? You yep, know? I don't have any plans for this week. Anyway, well, doesn't hmm. break my heart. <laughs> no, not at all. Hey, it's it's good. Enjoy, enjoy. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and jump in because um, this is a pretty exciting one. You know, I did, I did like a really, I did months of research on that speed free killers, even Mm -hmm. though it, it wasn't like consistent research every day, but I felt like I was on that one forever and it just kind of brought me down. So I wanted something refreshing and a bit more upbeat, you know, even though we're talking murder, but um I did find a story that's kind of inspirational and it isn't wholly centered on the murdered more so um, the convicted. So this week I'm going to tell you the story that I pieced together through newspaper articles, court documents, and other news sources. It's the story of a man named um, Hassan Bennett who was sentenced to LWAP, life (laughs) in prison without parole, for the first degree murder of Devin English. Devin was 19 when he was killed and Hassan Bennett was 23. Okay. You ready? Yep. Let's go. All right. So these, all these people, um, Hassan grew up in the Overbrook neighborhood in 
Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I looked up the neighborhood, you know, okay. it's historic. It's a really cool looking neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Very old. One of the oldest neighborhoods in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. It, the, the pictures on the internet, internet portray a quiet, safe, middle-class vibe. Uh, it's described as having an urban suburban feel when I looked it up on niche.com. The neighborhood has an overall grade of B on the niche website. So it's pretty safe to give you a perspective on it. Cindy, I looked up my neighborhood, which is a B plus. Okay. I looked up your neighborhood, which is a B plus. So it's not too far, you know, it's not that dissimilar to our neighborhoods. By the way, you out there can also find out your neighborhood's grade on niche.com. So it breaks, just breaks everything down in crime, schools, nightlife, diversity, education, things like that. Okay, nice. Yeah, because it was a pretty nice neighborhood and I'm going to say the word gangs. So, you know, I wanted to just get that picture in my mind. It's not really like an inner city neighborhood at all. Okay. Bennett graduated from Overbrook High School, which I also looked at just to get a feel of the place. And I was pleasantly surprised. It's an old historic building. And I, you know, the school has, uh, has there's a lot of information at the school, um, about the school on the internet. And it has some pretty famous alumni. There's Wilt Chamberlain. He's oh. a famous basketball hall of famer. Mm-hmm. And I was going to look up, it's going to go look up the years that he was there. I forgot. There's also Colonel Guy Bluford, who's the first African-American astronaut to be launched into space. The Delphonics, which was a pretty famous R&B band in the 1970s. And that I knew a couple of their songs, but I forgot to put the name a couple of senators went there there was an olympian and by the way will smith oh okay can you sing that born and raised that song yeah sing it sing the lyrics oh god i just did okay because this is the west philly neighborhood where he grew up that's mentioned in the song born and raised can i tell you something really fast sure when my husband and i first met so i'm older than him and yeah, you might want to swallow that before I tell you this. Um, okay. He was a child when when Fresh Prince of Bel Air was on, okay. and he thought this whole like when he was a kid, he thought it was saying West Willadovia or something <laughs> like that. And then when we met, and I was like, "What are you saying?" I was like, "What?" Are you? And he was like, "West Willadovia." I was like, "You mean West Philadelphia?" <laughs> he had no idea. <laughs> west whatever philadelphia Philadelphia. i'm like no i can hear the song in my head but i cannot grasp any of the lyrics west it's like like and my mom put me on in a car on the way to la or something like that yeah i can't remember but this is the song born and raised is like part of it i saw the west philadelphia so that's ah yeah Okay, so anyway, that's the neighborhood that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's um, Tushing, I uh, can't name the park. There's a famous park where he still will go and play basketball today. And that's kind of where all these, uh, this, this Overbrook neighborhood is a part of West Philadelphia, but it's not, it is known for some gang violence, mm-hmm. but pretty much the, the violent part of it went away after the 70s and the gangs were, I mean, I wouldn't say that they like dormant, but there there wasn't like gang wars or anything. Here, right, you want to play it? This is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside 
Okay, I don't think we can listen to the whole thing, can we? No, that's all we can do. Can't, we can't play the whole thing. Nope, Darn. that's it. Well, I could have written the lyrics down, but hey, audience, go listen to it. Now you know. All right. So anyway, at that um, that part of of West Philadelphia didn't really have a whole lot of gang violence. Didn't have a whole lot of shootings um, at each other, but it would flare up from time to time, and it flared up around the early two thousands. That's when you had rival gangs starting to shoot at each other. Robert Moran wrote an article that was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer on November 6, 2006. And his article detailed the growing turf wars in the West Philly neighborhood between two rival gangs, the 60 Lansdowne Crips, whose headquarters was on 60th and Lansdowne, and the Master Street, better known as the M Block, whose headquarters were on 59th and Master. So they're in the same neighborhood. But different street. Robert Moran, who was a staff writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, wrote an article that was published on November 6, 2006, that detailed the growing turf wars in the West Philly neighborhood. There were two rival gangs, and they were named after the streets where they worked in this neighborhood. One of them was on was called the 60 Lansdowne Crips, whose headquarters was on 60th and Lansdowne. And then there was the Master Street, better known as the M Block, whose headquarters are on 59th and Master. Moran had written or wrote that the area had some gang violence during the 1970s and the neighborhood had cleaned that up, but the gangs had never really totally went away. They just weren't actively shooting at each other. Now the gang violence was making a comeback. There were at least seven gang-related shootings between May and November 2006. Four injuries, two murders. Mm. On May 26, two men were shot by rival gang members in a retaliation hit. There was Algie Dennis, who died from his wounds, and the guy he was with was 19-year-old Devin English. He was also shot, but he survived his injuries. He wasn't so lucky the next time he got shot. Oh, damn. Golly. Right? Um, and there were a couple of other guys that had been shot once and then lived and then were, were shot again so i'm just focusing on this because of the guy that i'm focusing on right i can pick any number of people from this area and tell a story about them on september 26 2006 at around one in the morning devin english was sitting in his car with Corey ford and they were parked on robinson street near the lansdowne headquarters they were approached by two men who began shooting into the car Devin was shot in the head, back, and shoulder. His passenger, Corey Ford, who was his best friend, was shot twice in the legs and once in his ass when he was trying to pull Devin out of the car. Now, later on, there's testimony where somebody else was trying to pull him out of the car. A lot of it's kind of confusing, and you'll understand why in a few minutes, but um, they were both shot. EMTs are right. Now, Devin's dad is a paramedic. He wasn't the first responder who showed oh. up, as far as I know. I never, because you think that the news would latch onto that, right? Yeah, I would think so. They did, they did interview his dad a couple of times later, which I'll give you the quote on that later. But um, they were both taken to the hospital. Devin was pronounced dead hours later. Mm. But Corey was treated for his three gunshot wounds quickly and then within four hours of having been shot he was sitting in a small interrogation room at the police station in order to give a statement okay to a detective james pitts wow 
Yeah. So Ford is tired. He's in pain. He's in shock. All yeah. he wants to do is go home. He doesn't want to sit in an interrogation room Hello. at you know, police headquarters. So to expedite that, in order to get the hell out of there, he signed a type statement that Pitts provided. Okay. I'm not even sure if he actually read what he signed, but the document that he signed stated that he and Devin English were shot by 23-year-old Hassan Bennett and 16-year-old Lamont Dade, both of whom lived in the neighborhood. So he didn't tell them? He just From my understanding, he did not tell them, no. But he had a, he, there was a signed statement. Okay. He denies ha- ever having telling them, telling them that, but um, he signed a statement. That's kind of weird that they would just have this automatically like the signed statement. I don't know. That just seems. Okay. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit later. So just keep yeah. that in mind. Okay. All right. So there was a signed statement and his, you know, there, the statement tells a story. Like, you know, if you go, if you witness a, a shooting, then you go to the, you know, you fill out your statement. You write down what you saw. Yeah. All right. Police were aware that of Bennett. They already knew who this guy was. And as a matter of fact, responding officers had even interviewed him on the scene of the shooting that night or that early morning. Okay. They had interviewed him as a potential witness to the shooting because he said that he didn't see anything. He was on the phone at his residence, but he heard the gunshots. And so he went running out there. So he went running to it. He's like, you know, he said, I immediately came out of my house to see what happened. Okay. But he was brought in for questioning on September 25th and placed in a holding cell with a guy named, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I'm going to call him Karis Brown. Okay. And Karis Brown was in a holding cell because he was on probation. He had been arrested for, um, and he was facing a weapons charge. Now, when Karis got out of the jail cell, he told police, I got to tell you something. And he told them that Bennett was in the jail cell telling everybody that he had been, he was going to be charged with murder for killing someone over a dice game. And he had a plan to get rid of witnesses. Okay. 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 So they have right now, they have this jailhouse informant telling them, okay, this guy just admitted that he's probably going to get charged with murder. Then you have one of the guys that was shot saying Bennett did it. And then police question the 16 year old Lamont Dade, who Cody Ford said, oh, it was Dade and it was Bennett. Okay. Now Dade at first denied any involvement in the shooting, but he signed a statement saying that he watched Bennett shoot Ford in English and that Bennett had targeted English because he had lost money to him in a dice game. So the, the, the statement that he signed said, yeah, Bennett was pissed off because he lost $20 to, um, to English and he wanted to get it back. Hmm. Well, if you shoot That's, somebody, you're not ever, you're not going to get your money back. Well, you're going to see that supposedly they did because yeah. almost a year later, he's brought back into the, sh- to the police department and re-questioned. This was um, almost a year later, August 1st, 2007. He's date is brought back in for questioning and now he signs a different statement. This time, the statement is not, it's not the same. The first one he said, I, um, that I saw Bennett shoot the two. He targeted English because he lost money in a game, right? In a mm-hmm. dice game. Yeah. Now he says that Dade and Bennett were getting high at a crack house when Bennett convinced Dade to help him settle a score with English because Bennett had lost $20 to English in a dice game 
and he lamont himself had shot english in the head with a nine millimeter pistol not bennett bennett had used a 40 caliber pistol to shoot ford so now they both shot one and, and there were now two guns right this sounds like just a shit show already uh, yeah <laughs> The statement further said that Dade went through English's pockets when he was dying and snatched $2,000 and then gave the money and, the, and he gave the money and the weapons to Bennett because Bennett was going to take care of everything. Hmm. Okay. The statement further said that it was Dade, not Bennett, who was the loser of the game and that Bennett had goaded him into the attack by reminding him of the event. As part of a plea deal, he agreed to testify to this in court against Bennett. Now, Dade was 17 at the time. And he was sentenced to 20 to 40 years for his involvement. Okay. In his original statement, he claimed to have only witnessed Bennett shooting English. And then in the second one, now he's assisting. Oh, and he's high. He got high with Bennett. And that's going to be important later too. So yeah, I imagine it is. Okay. So with this information, police were able to obtain a search warrant for Bennett's house. They're looking for weapons. They're looking for money. They're looking for any, you know, bloody clothes, anything like that. Um, but they don't find anything no worries they have the testimony they have the statements of three people that he was there so they go ahead and they arrest him and charge him with murder attempted murder assault and 11 other counts related to the chief his trial began in february of 2008 in the court of common pleas of philadelphia county he was represented by an experienced and well regarded trial lawyer a guy named stephen laver Bennett testified and he denied any involvement with a shooting. He said, you know, I was in my house. I was on the phone. When I heard the shots, I came out. Now at this time, Cody Ford was no longer a cooperating witness for the state. Remember I said, he's the one that left the hospital and went, he's like, no, he said that neither Bennett nor Dade were involved in the shooting. And the prosecution introduced Ford's statement to police's evidence, but when questioned on the stand, he denied ever signing the document and said that a police detective named James Pitts coerced the statement. He well, said I, that- I, I'm sorry. I imagine that he was in so much pain that he was probably just like, get me the hell out of here. Okay, so he also says, and I think I might read this on a later slide, which I'm going to ruin it now just in case I forget and I didn't put it on the slide, mm -hmm. but he later testifies that when he was sitting there, he kept saying, no, no, that's not what happened. And that Pitts would like punch him in the leg where he got shot. <gasps> no way. Yeah. He, they were, uh, he, there were quite a few, which I'm going to kind of, I did I took a lot of that stuff out, mm -hmm. but I will tell you that 10 other people from 10 other cases have press charges, uh, brought that to police attention. See, I didn't really focus so much on like that. It could be like made some complaints about the same guy. Made some complaints. He was on desk duty, and then I think he ended up losing his job. But damn, sounds like. Right. And we'll we're going to get into that more because, of course, you know that's going to open the door for appeals and whatnot, right? Uh, yeah. The defense. The defense also called two of Ford's friends and Ford's mother to the stand, who all said that Ford had told them that Bennett was not involved in the shooting. So the only time, apparently that he did say it was when he was in that interrogation room with the police if he said it at all he said that they made him he said that they were punching him in the leg and doing other things to make him say what they wanted him to say that's terrible all right at that same trial Karis brown the uh our Karis brown 
however you say his name, the jailhouse guy right. testified as to what he said Bennett had told him in the holding cell. They testified, Dave, the Lamont Dave, the 16-year-old testified about how the shooting had happened and how Bennett had been upset with him for helping Ford out of the car after he was shot. A crime scene investigator also testified and he said that eight bullet casing casings had been recovered next to the car where English and Ford were shot. Seven casings were from the 40 caliber weapon that were found on the passenger side where Dade said Bennett had stood and a single nine millimeter casing was found on the driver's side. But the weapons were never found. Ever. During deliberations, um, a mistrial was declared. So they present their sides and the jury's deli- the jury deliberates. And then the judge gets a note that one of the jurors had been, had been seen talking with one of the witnesses. And I did try to look this up, okay? Because you would think that would be huge news, yeah. right? Witness tampering, but it wasn't witness tampering. What I kind of got out of it, my impression of reading it was that they knew each other and it was just like, hey, how are you? You know, we run into each other in court and, you know, what's the word? How are you doing? So it wouldn't be not witness tampering. It wouldn't be like jury tampering. It, it oh. wasn't even it wasn't even tampering. It was just declared a mistrial because it turned out that one of the witnesses knew one of the jurors. And that's what I'm thinking. I don't think it was anything nefarious at all. Okay. I don't think it was because I didn't get that impression with anything. It was just kind of like the witness and the jury juror knew each other mm-hmm. because you know when you go in uh, for the the voir dire process when you're right. going through the questions they don't they ask, ask they don't ask the witnesses okay so they don't ask they ask do you know like the person on trial yeah do you know anyone in that person's family but they don't say well do you know the neighbor across the street who might right I guess them. I mean I'm assuming they um like, well, they didn't to me when I was on the jury. Yes. Yeah. I've never they didn't say, you know, like there were, there was a character witness who came up. They didn't ask me if I knew that person. Yeah, that's true. So that's kind of what I think it was. But anyway, Bennett's second trial began on December 15th, 2008. And a week later, he was convicted of second degree murder, aggravated assault, criminal conspiracy, and possessing an instrument of crime. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. So after his conviction, he's sent to the state prison in Greaterford and what, from my understanding, it housed a lot of inmates from that same area in West Philly. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he knew a lot of people, you know, he was able to hear through the grapevine and everything. And Lamont Dade was about to be transferred there. And that, you know, they were worried about a problem. Several inmates said that they heard Dade um, say that he, that Bennett wasn't involved in the shooting. And when Dade ended up coming to prison, he was a floor underneath Dade, so, you know, they could hear each other. Yeah, they were talking what through are, the toilets or whatever. I don't know. It didn't say talking through the toilets, but <laughs> that was my first impression. Did you ever watch that show? Yeah, but or the kites. That's what they called them, and they would like... Yeah, but they would talk through the toilet, and then they would send each other notes or send things up. Yeah, and they would have to, like, flush at a certain time so that they could get it through or something crazy like that. Yeah. Such, cre- such imagination, such creativity. I would get caught. All right. Well, so he hears Dade say that it was all set up, that he was tricked and threatened by James Pitts, the homicide detective. And, you know, this is great news for Bennett. It lit a fire in his heart because, and I'm going to tell you why, while in prison, Bennett spent hours in the prison law library studying, studying cases, 
learning the law, learning legalese, writing briefs. According to the Washington Post, Bennett spent more than 12 years of preparation, studying case law in the library by day and meticulously drafting legal briefs in a cell by night using a flickering TV as a light source. Oh, wow. Now he, he said, and I didn't put this in the slide, but I did read a lot of interviews with him. Um, he said that he knew in his heart that nobody could defend him and his innocence more than he could. It's like, there's nobody that believes as strongly in my, and you know, he was so upset by this because he's like, mm-hmm. it wasn't me. That was his thing. It wasn't me, right? It wasn't me. <laughs> and it almost reminds me, I mean, this is my nerd coming out, but if you know anything about Joseph Campbell, do you know about Joseph Campbell's hero's journey? No. So it's kind of like, you know, you have your hero and he starts off and he's in a bad neighborhood or he's got a bad life, you know, parents are dead, whatever. He's an orphan and he struggles. He's kind of an outsider and then has a challenge and he has to fight his way out of it. And before he makes it to the end, usually as a mentor, okay, think like Luke Skywalker preparing for a battle, right? He's got his mentor. He's got a father figure. Okay. All right. So our guy here has his own father figure or his own mentor Mm -hmm. his cellmate brother mook tutor bennett in debate and courtroom jargon because brother mook was kind of like a what they call a prison lawyer oh god i I can't think of the word right now but i prison well prison lawyer we'll just do it that way he knew the law he knew the law and he would actually rip up bennett's handwritten draft petitions into tiny shreds if he failed to write them in the proper format He was like my Yoda. Bennett always knew that he wanted that what he wanted was to be exonerated, that he would have to represent himself. And he did soon get the chance because he had read through a legal argument. He had just recently read a legal article where two other inmates, Nafis Pinckney and Amin Speaks, had been exonerated from their murder convictions after it had been proven that witnesses had been coerced by detectives, one of whom's name was James Pitts. No way. So that very same detective who had interviewed the witnesses in his case, Corey Ford and Lamont Dade, had been called to the stand, or not, I don't think he ever went to the stand for this, but those two other men were exonerated. Oh, wow. Because it was proven that, that, um, Pitts had coerced the, the witnesses. That's a shame. So, so now, um, now Bennett is going to put his legal skills to the test. So he petitions the court for a new trial, challenging that the witness statements were tainted. He's granted a jury hearing in front of Judge M. Teresa Sarmina. You would think that they would redo all of that dude's cases, like all of the cases that. He okay, so on. we're going to get to that, right? Oh, okay. We are going to get to that. And it's a, it's a jailhouse lawyer. Is that what because you're saying? jailhouse lawyer the jailhouse is that what it is jailhouse lawyer okay all right yeah kind of like self-taught yeah Yeah. all right bennett represented himself in um in those three days of hearings like he he had written all the briefs and everything and he had called lamont dade and i think i have this part right he later has uh well he does find another lawyer later but let me just finish this he called uh lamont dade to the stand because Lamont had recanted his testimony. He said that um, he had lied because he didn't like Bennett. He said something about Bennett sleeping with his girlfriend. 
And at the hearing, he said that he committed the shooting by himself, that he didn't know who the second shooter was. So when, when prosecution's like, well, there was a second shooter there, who was it? And he's like, I don't know. In a brief, uh, the prosecution wrote um, against his motion, they noted many discrepancies in Lamont Dade's recantation. They noted that it occurred only after Dade learned that Bennett was going to be in the same prison and that Dade's new version of events contained critical gaps. He had no explanation for how the gun had just appeared. He had no explanation for who other shooter was. So Sarmina denied Bennett's motion and her ruling was upheld on appeal. But in 2014, he finds an attorney to file another post-conviction relief act petition. And he does, the, the lawyer does, but Bennett fires him. And he requ- he's requ- he requests to represent himself. Okay. Uh, but let's see he the following july he filed his own post-conviction relief act motion claiming ineffective claiming extensive ineffective assistance of counsel by laver who had died in 2009 he said that laver failed to call two key witnesses jasmine murray and daniel saunders to the stand bennett was on his cell phone with murray at the time of the shooting and saunders could testify to hearing part of that conversation in his correspondence with Bennett, Labor wrote that he was hesitant about calling Saunders to the stand because Saunders had credibility issues due to an arrest record. Yeah. Bennett said that Saunders didn't testify. Yeah. Uh, he said he noted that if Saunders didn't testify, he would be unable to establish a basis for calling Murray. Saunders was never called, but Bennett said in his motion that Saunders' charge had been dropped prior to trial. He should have testified, paving the way for Murray's evidence. So Saunders wasn't brought to try didn't have a record oh so basically the lawyer the lawyer never called anyone to the stand to say that you know where bennett was to establish the alibi i was on the phone at my residence this guy was there and i was on the phone with this woman in addition laver failed to introduce the cell phone records that that had that could show that bennett's phone was being used for 30 minutes before during and after the time that ford and english were shot yeah, the lawyer really dropped the ball on that, didn't they? Right. Bennett also said in his petition that Labor had failed to adequately impeach Brown, the jailhouse informant, by showing the true extent of his criminal charges at the time. The problem was that Brown had some charges under a different name and Labor didn't secure those records. So he didn't go after that, jail, that jailhouse informant who said, oh, he's bragging about possibly getting charged. He also said that Labor failed to call a witness who could have testified that she saw Bennett in the aftermath of the shooting and that the clothes he was wearing didn't match the description and Ford's statement. Separately, Bennett's petition also revealed a new witness whom police had never interviewed. This man said he saw the shooting and knew it wasn't Bennett because the shooters had close cropped hair and Bennett had dreads at the time. Yeah. Bennett so, said Labor. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So the guy that was in the prison cell with him. How did he get this story? Was he like a plant? I don't know if maybe the investigators, the investigator said, if you say this, I'll drop. I, I could not find anything else on him. Mm. I looked, I looked for, I looked for even why he was in prison, but if it was under an alias, then I might not even be looking at it. And I imagine there's, there's so much crime in, you know, Philly that, not all of it is going to be in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Not the one I looked at anyway. I mean, probably, I don't know. I mean, you would think that they would post everybody who's arrested, but 
Uh, in addition, Bennett said that labor was ineffective in challenging the statement signed by Ford, which, prosecute, which prosecutors used to rebut, rebut his exculpatory testimony. And I swear I knew what that meant last night, but I do not know what that means right now. All right, so Bennett said labor was ineffective in challenging the statement signed by Ford. So Ford signed that statement, but he did not try to challenge it at all. Bennett noted that Ford was taken from the hospital at 4.13 a.m. and arrived at the police station 10 minutes later. He had been shot just three hours earlier, was barely clothed, and was in a holding room for nearly 10 hours before he signed a statement that named Dade and Bennett as shooters. Now, at the mistrial, Ford had testified that Pitts had told him what to say. That testimony wasn't introduced into evidence in the second trial. In a statement to a private investigator made it in 2015, Ford said that he had been forced to hire an attorney to keep Pitts at bay and that the officer hit him in the leg while he was being questioned in the holding room at, at, about the shooting. So exculpatory evidence, mm -hmm. evidence favorable to the defendant in a criminal trial that exonerates or tends to exonerate the defendant of guilt. So it's evidence proving that they're not. Right. So he failed to bring that up. Any yeah, of that. Any of those things I just said. But the, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, because, also the opposite, which is inculpatory evidence which i don't think we ever really heard that term it's usually the other way because wouldn't that just be evidence i'm saying, I'm saying big words right now and, <laughs> oh, yeah. and i worked so hard today all week um my tongue is like Bleh. yeah well all right anyway by the time of bennett's motion pitts was being investigated for co coercing others on november 6 2013 the philadelphia daily news published a lengthy article article that revealed how three murder prosecutions handled by Pitts had collapsed amidst accusations that he had coerced false statements from witnesses through th threats and physical violence. It, I already told you about those two guys. What? This pisses me off because, I mean, I know there's, there's bad people out there, but it's like these people are supposed to be the good people. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's what he's going to say later. And I'm, yeah, that's exactly what... Bennett says later so I'm going to talk about that so I already told you about Pinckney and the other guy mm -hmm. um sweat was that his name I can't remember uh, Spears mm -hmm. they had already been exonerated in 2019 another man Dwayne Thorpe had been exonerated based largely on testimony that Pitts had coerced false statements from witnesses so it you know is the same thing in Ford's 2015 statement he said that Dade and a man with a nickname of Cooge were the shooters Huge. and he provided a possible motive for dade framing bennett ford said that dade was upset that bennett had slept with his girlfriend dade had testified what that's stupid yeah dade had testified that he and bennett had smoked marijuana prior to the shooting at the time bennett was on probation and he was required to be drug test drug tested Laver had those records, including tests from September 25th, 2006, that covered the period in question, but those records weren't introduced. Bennett wrote in his petition, defendant's clean drug results would have corroborated defendant's testimony. He does not smoke weed. Moreover, <laughs> evidence would have impeached Lamont Dade's statements. He smoked weed with defendant before and after the shooting. So Bennett's like, dude, I had clean piss test that you did that you made me do in front of people i don't smoke weed 
This guy just so, got railroaded, didn't he? Yeah. Well, I mean, the I don't understand why this well well regarded attorney did yeah. not bring forth any of this information. So, how did he? Do you know how he died? I do not know how he died. I did not look, and I thought that that was on my list of things to look up. But I just, yeah, I wonder if he wasn't like in his right mind. He was. He did die in two thousand nine. So I don't know if he was an older man or not. I'm not sure. But he, um, he damn sure didn't do his job on this one. If you ask me. All right. So Bennett also noted that jurors had examined the as this aspect of the testimony during during their deliberation. So they, when they were doing their deliberations, it's like, oh, you know, he was smoking weed. Bennett also alleges in his petition that prosecutors had withheld evidence that backed up Ford's trial testimony clearing Bennett. Ford was arrested in late 2006 on a weapons charge, and two of his friends told police that they were out looking for Cooge in retaliation for the shooting because, you know, it's a gang warfare. It's you shoot my brother, I'm going to shoot yours. Yep. During Bennett's trial, police had said Ford's refusal to name Bennett had nothing to do with his innocence and everything to do with Ford not wanting to be a snitch. So prosecution is saying, well, or the police are saying, no, Ford just doesn't want to be seen as a snitch by, by you know, neighborhood, but, you know, police statements by his friends undercut that theory. Ford knew who shot him, Bennett claimed, and he was planning revenge on the right person. So without comment, Sarmina ordered a new trial. So he gets his new trial. So now we're going on the third trial. The state didn't appeal and Bennett's third trial began on August 27th, 2018. He was now representing himself. Again. Well, now he's in front of a jury. So that before what he just did was in front of the judge to get a new trial. Right. So when, who pays for like, all of this is it tax, tax dollars yeah. yeah. so he was there was a mistrial the first trial the second trial he was um, found guilty now he's on the third trial okay. because ineffective counsel okay he's representing himself there is a public defender i think a guy named benjamin cooper who is his standby attorney but he didn't do you know he he kind of like was his bouncing board but right. yeah Bennett represented himself like a uh not a mentor but uh yeah to make sure kind of was a mentor he was but not like the jailhouse mentor um now his conviction had been overturned he was still he was still incarcerated he couldn't make bond so he was still in jail while he's preparing for his trial he chose to appear in court in his jail clothing and he presented his case that trial ended on september 13th and a hung jury with all but one of the jurors voting for acquittal. Wow. But he didn't know that. He wasn't, he never knew that it was only one juror that held out. Mm. Um, because I think, and that was something that the, that was reported widely. I don't know how you wouldn't know. They don't tell you. I thought that they like read the verdict like there in front of yeah, you. Yeah. I, he, it said that he didn't know, like he never knew uh, if he had known then you know, he would have been shocked. But he does get the fourth trial. It begins on um, April 23rd, 2019, still in his prison clothes. He's again representing himself. Now, as at the third trial, Ford and Dave testified that their statements or previous testimony that implicated Bennett had been coerced by Pitts. Prosecutors didn't call Pitts as a witness, but Bennett did. Oh, good for him. Yeah. And he used his questions to establish that coercion was a pattern in Pitts's career. 
Separately, he was also able to introduce his cell phone records that were not introduced in the in the second first and second trials. Nice. And I'm kind of jumping around here, like um, everything out. Oh, he said some really good things in his um, case, but it was getting so long. But in part of his closing argument, then it suggested that the witnesses Lamont and Corey were manipulated by homicide detectives to make incriminating statements against him. Mm-hmm. He told the jurors that the witnesses were being held in small windowless rooms at police headquarters interrogated for hours and hours he said it's like a closet it's locked you're alone um he you know he said that ford had claimed that pitts had hurt him in the where he got shot in his leg he begged the jury to please follow the evidence and find him innocent of all charges and that's what they did after deliberating for 81 minutes the jury acquitted him on may 6 2019 and he left the courthouse still wearing his prison gear. Wow. So they just release you right then? Is that how that works? Yes, I guess because there are pictures of him coming out with the boxes of stuff. And I think I say that. Wow. The, yeah, there are pictures all over the internet of him um, coming out and still wearing his DOC shirt. So yeah, I mean, he, he argued it. Um, he did have a lot of interviews, of course, after that. You know, this, oh, I this, imagine so. this is a great story, you know. Speaking to WUSL 98.9 FM radio station a few days after the trial, Bennett said that he had been confident that he would be acquitted because he had prepared so well. When I heard them actually say first-degree murder, we find the defendant not guilty, I grabbed the standby counsel. I gave him a hug. We did it. We're certified. So, you know, this guy worked his ass off to learn the law and to write and represent himself in two appeals, you know. Um, on Detective Pitts in the trial of Dwayne Thorpe, there were 10 witnesses who have no relation to each other, except to all who say the same thing, that Detective Pitts used force, bullying, threats, and coercion to attempt to secure statements from people. It strains credulity to accept the notion that all 10 witnesses fabricated allegations that in part are consistent with each other and tell the same story about this detective. Yeah. And... 2016 judge m teresa sarmina the same judge where am i okay granted a hearing on the petition to hear evidence on thorpe's claims that his trial defense lawyer had provided an inadequate legal defense by failing to object to pitts's testimony about the recovery of drugs and a gun by failing to object and use a mistrial so another attorney not objecting to anything that's going on so it's a pattern with this guy mm-hmm now that hearing lasted four days and Mosser, who was Tharp's attorney, presented testimony from 10 witnesses who detailed how Pitts extracted false statements from them. One woman said she was handcuffed to a chair for two days in a police station while Pitts threatened to charge her with murder and refused her request to speak to a lawyer or a family member. Oh, that's a big no-no. Yep. Finally, she testified Pitts typed up statements saying what he wanted her to say and she signed it. A man testified that when he said he knew nothing about a crime that Pitts was investigating, Pitts threatened to send him to the hospital and then punched him in the face. The man said he finally agreed to give a false statement after Pitts pulled his chair up close to him and ground his knee into the man's penis for 20 minutes while asking questions. Another witness said he was um, said that when he was 18, he uh, another witness who was 18 and only had a third or fourth grade reading level and was bipolar schizophrenic with fetal alcohol syndrome oh man was questioned by pitts about a murder that he knew nothing about the witness said pitts accused him of the murder and slapped him in the mouth 
Pitts then left the room and returned with a typed statement and told the youth that he could go home if he signed it. And so, of course, the guy did. Um, he didn't read it because he couldn't read and he was arrested. Damn it. The statement said the victim was Markel Bradley, and that was a person who did not exist. And I didn't look that up. So I don't even really know what any of that means. Another woman said that Pitts kept her handcuffed to a chair for three days and called her a bitch and a whore and threatened to take her children away and said she was going to spend the rest of her life in prison. And he claimed that her boyfriend had been shot in the penis. I don't know what that means either. Jeez. That yeah. sounds horrible. Yeah. Um, also, Lamont Dade, the one who did get, who did say, who did shoot um, Devin English. You know, I'm not so sure that he really did because he's also seeking exoneration, saying that, you know, Pitts denied him the right to call his dad. Like he was 16. I mean, your son is 16. Yeah. What if he's talking, taken to the police station and, you know, not allowed to call you, not allowed to leave? There'd be fucking hell to pay. Right. So, you know, that's what the other lawsuit said, that, uh, that petition. He is, he's appealing that to the, the state Supreme Court, I believe. I got rid of all those because it was too long, but it's a very interesting story. So I'm not sure that he, you know, he didn't know where the guns were. You know, he's supposed to be a clean kid, never smoked pot in his life. So I'm not sure if he really did it or not. All right. I, I listened to an interview between WBUR's Robin Young and Hassan Bennett that was aired on May 20th, 2019. Uh-huh. And I mean, I was pretty impressed by this guy. Okay. He spent 13 years incarcerated for a murder that he didn't commit, but he was positive and upbeat. He wasn't bitter. When she asked him if he could ever get over losing 13 years of his life, he said that he couldn't dwell on the time that he had lost. He said, even when he was in there, he went in with the attitude that you do the time, you don't let the time do you. So while he was in there, he was utilizing the prison law library. He was doing what he needed to get out. He believes that he's on a mission to educate people, especially young people, of their rights. He said that people need to know their basic rights. If you want to call your dad and you're under 18, then you know you don't sign anything. You freaking demand it. He said that, yeah. And then he was saying that we have basic rights as Americans those are the privileges of living in America. He yep. is considering a legal career after his courtroom success. He actually got hired by that standby attorney, but he wants to go to law school. Okay, fair he said, yeah, he said that people from our neighborhood, from low income neighborhoods, they don't really know the law. But see, there are people from the legal community that don't know about the low income neighborhoods. They don't know about the hood, as they call it. Mm-hmm. He says, I am that bridge. Even though a jury found Hassan Bennett not guilty, Devin English's family was still heartbroken and grieving after 12 years. They were devastated and they keep, this keeps going back to court. Now the guy that they believed shot their son was found not guilty. In an interview, his aunt Tina Lee said that Bennett's acting as an attorney and drawing laughs from spectators due to his street vernacular and unpolished style had made a mockery of her late nephew's life and the justice system english's family told reporters that bennett would get his just punishment when he met god robin young asked bennett about what he thought about you know his family and he said that he completely understood why they believed that he was the murderer because prosecutors and police those people that we think we should trust kept saying this is the killer this is the killer 
Then it said that English's death was sad. Um, he was 19 years old. He lost his life. He never had the opportunity to go to college or get married or have kids. Um, and, he, and he and his family were denied justice. He also said that he was highly uncomfortable with getting so much media attention on like the back of that murdered boy. Uh, he did suggest like doing some sort of memorial for him, but he said that um, for some reason, Devin English's parents did not go to that trial. So they did not see the evidence. He said, if they could have been there, if they could see the evidence that was put before the jury, they would know without a doubt what the evidence proves, which is he's innocent. Uh, oh, uh, so that's it. This man yeah. is um, I know what that's in Philadelphia, like. I hope. <laughs> I mean, I know what that's like when, because of my friend who was murdered, even though the guy who murdered him, mm-hmm. you know, is in prison, but, you know, to have his sentence reduced is still you know and I was there in the courtroom when they reduced his sentence I mean they reduced the sentence from life in prison without parole like without parole to 50 years you know I mean but he had already served half his sentence and I mean now he's already served half and because he was 17 and a half years old in a year they revisit his sentencing like he could be let out next year right And and his family has to deal with that yes yeah. So, I mean, I get, I mean, I know that that is just heart wrenching and, I mean, and when they go back to court like that, even just for resentencing, they bring out the evidence all over yeah. again and they, yeah. you know, it's just, it is horrific for them. I'm sure. And, you know, I, there's so much that I left out of the story. You know, I'm not sure if Hassan Bennett was a part of the gang violence. I'm not sure if he was just there. He did say that he said some smart ass shit to the cop you know, well, you need to do your job or something. And he thinks that's why he was targeted. Mm. Um, Did he have any kind of record before this? I didn't even look that up. You know, I didn't see anything. Oh, I'm sure it would have come up if he had. You know, and there was, there was so much that I couldn't find. Like I couldn't find that cell, that jailhouse attorney. I couldn't find anything about Devin English's. I know he graduated from high school. They both graduated from the same high school. They knew each other, I think. Um, Well, Hassan was a little bit older. He was 23 at the time and mm-hmm. Devin English was 19 and they had their whole lives in front of them. Oh, absolutely. They were high school graduates and, you know, golly. Yeah. Dang. Yep. Well, thank you, Mercedes. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was very interesting and I could have spent weeks on it, but I'm like, no, I'm going to Denver. I'm cutting this one short. <laughs> Guess what? We're not going to Denver. I'm so oh, sorry. That's okay. I'll, find somewhere else to go yeah lucky you (laughs) all right well thank you so much and thank you guys for listening to this week's murder we appreciate sharing our passion with you and we thank you for your support if you'd like to support us even further please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five giving us a five-star rating and a comment your subscription and ratings are essential to our success you can do this on your favorite platform and for more information and links to our facebook instagram and twitter pages please visit our website at it wasn't me truecrime.com. We are super grateful to spend our time together to share murder stories. Thanks so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-leaving friends and family. And thanks to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't me. me.